Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I want to begin by telling you a very quick story of a friend of mine that I met a number of years ago. I won't get into his name, uh, but uh, he is a devout Muslim from Morocco. Uh, When I was there, we became friends and kept maintained that friendship uh, for a number of years now. And uh, and in in my dealing with him, I've tried to slowly, you know, if you try to if you try to if you try to love or minister to um, a Muslim, uh, it's boy, it's tough. Uh, because there are certain there are certain things that are restricted. One of the things that's restricted for them is they're not allowed to ask questions. So they can have them, they can't ask them. Uh, and so you know it's forbidden by their law to to even question their faith. And if I were writing a faith, by the way, I'd probably include that as a rule. You can't question it. It is what it is. But so slowly and over time, I would try to expose certain certain things that I became acquainted with and knew about. And so. Uh, he he would he would call me and we would you know he would ask me even to pray he even calls me pastor, uh, but far 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 from from the truth and so on one particular day when, when we were face to face he he shared with me that he was holding his father when his father died and how emotionally draining that was on him as a son and uh, while we while I was there he he, he spoke to me about his his ailing mother and how he was taking care of her. And one of his fears was losing his mother as well. So I'm back in the States and he's, he's telling me, giving me updates about his mom. And, uh, and I asked him about her faith. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen to your mom when she takes her last breath? What kind, of, what kind of guarantees or what kind of peace is afforded to you with your, with your faith? And he said, oh, I mean, one can only hope that you've done enough good to outweigh the bad. I said, well, you think your mom's done enough good? Well, only Allah knows. And I said uh, something along the line of, you know, is that, is that the only peace that you have? And he said, here's what we know, that whether a person's deeds are good or whether a person's deeds are bad, it really kind of, it kind of comes down to what kind of mood Allah is in on any given day. And so you can never really know. And I said, Mama, that's, that's such a sad thing to me to know that that's the only peace that you can have is contingent upon a moody God. I am so glad that my God offers more peace than your God does. You know, there are some places around the world, in fact, I would say very few, that offers any guarantees in eternity. Even within Christianity, I pastored a man one time who, just through subtle teaching, that it came up, he, he called me to the side, and he was an older man and a, and a seasoned one. And he began to, to sort of correct me on some things I was teaching about that if a man were a Christian and he were to commit some sin that he did not have time to repent of, that if that man died in between the sin and his death, he would not go to heaven. That Christians must die with no unconfessed sin on their list. And I thought, boy, that teaching exists within Christianity too. I can't imagine, and I'm not saying, hey, chum it up and go out and commit all the sin you want. I'm saying that that's not the presentation of the gospel that John gives us in 1 John chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today. It seems to me that conservative, traditional, evangelical Christianity is the only place that you will find any assurance of salvation. 
Finding yourself in a place where you're walking lockstep, arm in arm with Jesus Christ is the only guarantee of eternal life. This is why John teaches it. And so I want you to have the assurances that come with a relationship with Jesus Christ. your, your, Your salvation is not contingent upon how holy you can be in any given moment, but upon the perfection of Jesus Christ and claiming in him. And if you walk away from that or forfeit that or miss the trajectory on who Jesus is, then you forfeit the whole thing. And that's what John is saying, and not only to have the assurance, but there are certain benefits and blessings that come with simple assurance. And John finishes his letter to the church with these confidences that come from the assurances. And I'm going to break those down just a little bit. We're going to begin in verse 13. Every message that we get from the world tends to be a message of live for yourself. And it takes a lot of effort to keep showing up and to keep denying ourselves and to keep loving. And the gap between the biblical Jesus and the world seems to keep getting broader and broader. The gap is wider and wider. It's harder and harder to be consistent with our faith without drifting into the just keeping up the faith of the Joneses. And so overall, you begin to see this, you know, this tendency of our faith to, to mirror one another. So in other words, what I'm saying is rather than growing in Christ-likeness, we're just growing in likeness to other Christians we know. And we keep up. And when the, when the world says something is okay, the church is only about 20 years behind it. And so when we evaluate our true faith, rather than comparing our faith to and our maturity in Christ, we choose to compare it to others. It's a lot safer. And we don't often compare it to the best Christians we know. We compare it to maybe not the best Christians we know. Now this causes us some maybe temporary mental relief and satisfies our our guilt and maybe our shame for a moment, but it does not satisfy our spirit's uncertainty. There's always this wonder of hope so. And, And so spiritually, it begins to leave us numb, kind of empty, kind of wondering, kind of scratching our head, wondering, am I really right with God? Does God really love me? Did I really mean it? And I'm going to tell you that this is one of Satan's greatest tools against you is if he can keep you in a place of scratching your head and wondering if you're enough, if you meant it enough, he will paralyze the power of Jesus Christ in you. He will paralyze you if he can. And so I feel like that's one of the things that God has called me into is not necessarily just to stand up and to preach, but to continually remind the people of God their true identity in true Jesus, not just pastoring a church, but reminding us of the power of Jesus Christ in us. So verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Know that you have eternal life. And he uses these words, I write these things. That word in the Greek is a demonstrative pronoun and it's in the accusative case. What does that mean? I'm gonna tell you. It means that what John has said, listen, it's where I get it. John says it, Paul says it. Here's what he says, right? Those of you who make fun of me, here's what John is saying. This is a Blaine translation. I said all that to say this. That's what John is saying. Everything up to this moment, I write to you these things. It includes all of those things that he's mentioned so that you can know. Because once you know that you have eternal life, it unlocks some incredible benefits for the believer. And surprisingly enough, he sums those up relatively quickly. That doesn't mean that I will. I'm sorry about that. Doubt comes from every other place. But I want you to listen to me very closely. We need to be very careful about where our assurance of our salvation comes from. 
Because assurance of salvation only comes from one place. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus satisfied the sin debt. It's the only place that the assurance of your salvation can come from. Every other place breeds doubt and wonder and confusion. So John comes to the end of this letter, as we do too, and he says this, I want you to move from I hope so faith. Are you going to heaven when you die? Is Jesus truly the son of God? Well, I hope so. No, we can move beyond hope to a certainty. And so from the outset of this letter, from the very beginning, John is very burdened to present a very true Christ to the church. He wrote about, if you go back in chapter one, again, I'm not gonna reteach the whole book, but he wrote about what he had uh, and his fellow apostles had heard and what they had seen with their eyes, he says, and what they had looked upon and what they had touched with their hands. Now, these Gnostic gospels, these Gnostic preachers had come into the church after the apostles had moved on and, and moved on into other communities to establish church. These Gnostic te- teachers came in to say, well, that's what he said. Here's what he meant. They hadn't seen it. They hadn't touched it. They hadn't experienced it. They were rational. They were reasonable. And they were moving people from biblical Jesus to some other form of Christianity. And so John was deeply burdened for his readers because understanding the biblical Jesus is like stepping on like a solid rock and everything about your life launches from that singular place. And if you're not standing exactly on who Jesus is, it's going to affect the, at some point, it's going to negatively impact your trajectory. And you're going up in a place that you didn't mean to end up in. You're going to begin believing little false truths here and false truths there. And you're going to make an allowance here. And you're going to let in a little, maybe a, a, a negotiation here and a compromise here. And before long, it leads you to a place that you didn't know you were headed. And that's what John is trying to warn this early church about. So for him, disagreement over the truth of Jesus is not something where you could just agree to disagree and move on. This is uh, something that if you take notes, I'd love for you to write this down and maybe memorize. This is a, a truth. Everything that you believe, everything that you believe affects the way you behave. Okay, so so what I'm saying is a lot of times we try to respond the opposite way. How you behave, you'll eventually cultivate a belief for something. But that's that's not true. It's, It's everything that you believe affects the way you behave. It works in here and in through here and then out here. So if you wanna know what you truly believe, look at your behavior. A lot of people say, fake it to you. What is it? Fake it to you. Some of you need to wake up a little bit. I need some help. Fake it till you make it. That's right. Go through the motions and eventually you'll have it. That's not the way you work faith. Because what you believe affects the way you behave. Your beliefs are what transform your behavior. But with Jesus, if you believe him and you align your beliefs in him, you will be transformed to be like him. But you can't fake to look like Jesus and it changed the way you believe. And if that's not the way it works, then your life can never be transformed. And many Christians choose the roller coaster of their faith. On again, off again, on again, off again. And you go through terrible things that bring you low. God, I need you. Hey, things are pulling out. I'm gonna see y'all later when bad things happen again. And that's the way our life begins to work. Highs and lows, highs and lows. But John is teaching us that when you truly have surrendered to Jesus Christ, it is a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. It's maturity. And so everything about your life flows out of what you believe about Jesus. And so he says, I write these things to you who believe, he's writing to the church, in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
He knew that true life was only found in true Christ. And the only way, I mean, your life could get better if you model the morality of Jesus. If you believe some of the things, every, every truth belongs to God. And so if you adopt some of those truths, there's a decent trajectory over certain areas of your life. But if you're looking for eternal life, it's only found in the true Jesus and following after him. It's the only place it can be found. So John states that, we look at verse 21, I, I know I'm, and no, I'm not almost done, but little children, keep yourself from idols. In 1 John, an idol is not a carved statue. Uh, in this letter, idolatry is specifically a wrongly held view of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul talks about this from time to time where they have taken idols and they have placed them into their hearts. Well, obviously they're not taking stone and wood and forcing them into their heart. What he's saying is you're, you're taking incorrect uh, teaching and you're applying it to your life. And that's, what, that's the way John uses this word here too. It's a, it's a false ideology about Jesus. It's, it's a, a, a taking into yourself these false realities about Jesus and thinking them that they're going to produce some life. But every falsehood produces death. And that's what John is trying to say. It's no wonder Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation because they have so many false ideologies and false confessions about who Jesus truly is. And if you're wondering why the world is rewriting every truth about Jesus right now, it's because Satan's hand is at the wheel and he's guiding them to sell us a cheapened version of Jesus. And let me tell you, a cheapened version of Jesus cannot and will not save you. It'll make you feel better temporarily. But it will not lead you into everlasting life. So any view of Jesus that doesn't align with apostolic teaching is idolatry. So where do we find our view of Jesus? Not a podcast, not a apologetic pastor, not some seasoned believer. Where do we find the truth about Jesus Christ? In the apostolic teaching of the ones who saw him, who heard him, who touched him. That's where truth is found. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have some corollary, but it had better, it had better defend the word of God. The crux of the gospel message is who is Jesus now listen, I'm going to tell you, a changed life is evidence of salvation. But our ultimate confidence for eternal life lies not in how we have behaved, but in what we believe about Jesus. If you want to be sure of eternal life, ask yourself this, what do I believe about Jesus? What actions and choices am I making in my everyday life that brings honor and glory to Jesus? Where has my heart shifted and I'm making different decisions to honor and to glorify my belief in Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about verbal agreement. I'm talking about alignment agreement. That's belief. Alignment not to make some confession of who Jesus is, but go in a different direction from time to time. That's actually what John is referring to here. It's people who make confessions, but they're not based upon the belief in Jesus, just an ideology. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So I want to take just a moment and I want to kind of sum up 13 in light of 14 in light of 13. And continuing, I write these things that you may know, you who believe in the son of God may know that you have everlasting life. And this is the confidence. Here's one of the confidences, one of the benefits that flows out of certainty, assurance of your salvation. And that is that you can have your prayers answered. 
talking about prayer life. It's one of the, now that I am a Christian, now that my beliefs have aligned with the teaching of Jesus Christ as presented from the apostles themselves, are my prayers being answered? So, and then he says in verse 15, and we, what? No, he hears us, whatever we ask. We know, see these assurances? These assurances beget confidence in our prayer life. You ever been talking on the phone and, and you're just letting people, you know, like this big detailed message and, or, you know, story that you're relating to them or some, and then you realize that the call got cut off or there's a disturbance. You, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody that ever happened to anybody? And then you're like, are you there? Are you still there? And then you call back. What do you do when you call back? You say something along the lines of, uh, hey, what, what was I saying? And then they might say, I don't remember. It was 10 seconds ago. What do you mean you don't remember? Oh, well, what you were saying really wasn't that important to me. I was actually doing something else while you were talking. No, nobody would say that. How can we not remember? Because it's not really that important. Sometimes our prayer life is like that. It's like, Lord, I'm, I'm not. You ever prayed and just forget what you were talking about to the Lord? Maybe not, but I have. What was I saying? Oh, never mind. It's not important anyway. Here's what, here's what I was going to say at the end of that. I'm, talking, I'm still talking on the phone, by the way, for those of you who think I'm talking about the sermon. I know right where I'm at. But you get to say, you know, I'm going to cut through all that story and just tell you, you know what? Here's what I really think about that. Boom. Now, you still there? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you got that. A lot of stories we tell we don't need to tell. But in prayer, wouldn't it be nice to know that God is listening, that God cares, that God understands? And that you're not saying, Lord, are you still there? Lord, it's me, Margaret. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you defined yourself before you broke into the throne room there. No, we got a God that listens. Can you imagine the confidence Paul talks about to be able to boldly and with confidence to come into the throne room of God. That's not arrogance. It's confidence because of assurance of our salvation. And not only in our salvation, but in the salvation himself, Jesus Christ. I'm not in here because I deserve it. I'm in here because Jesus afforded it to me. Boy, there is some confidence that comes from that. And according to John, when our lives align, our prayers align. When your life aligns in Jesus, we have confidence in our prayer life. It's no wonder most Christians don't have confidence in their prayer life. But there's a caveat here. That if we ask anything, what? According to his will. Remember when Jesus was in the garden, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We should pray like Jesus, according to your will. So then a person who loves, a soul who obeys, and a heart that knows God, the evidence of that is they have surrendered to God's will as they pray. That's what John is saying. If, if, you, if you know God, if you if you are growing and obeying God, and if you love one another, one of the benefits is you are heard by God. We desire what God wants for our life more than what we want for our life. Listen, Paul's talking about the certainties, the assurances, the confidences. So I want you very quickly to think about your prayer life. And you may even say here now and say, you know what? I really know what I want for my life. And I'm asking God to give me according to my heart. But, but John, along with Jesus, says we should pray according to his will. And I'm telling you, if you are surrendered in alignment to him, you will desire his life for you more than your own life for you. And as you begin to invest in God's will, you begin to gain a heart for God's will. So John is warning the church that if you're wrong about Jesus, you're not going to have an effective prayer life. In fact, there are some other things that come alongside that. I'm going to take just a really quick, maybe, hiatus away from 1 John and go to several other places in Scripture to talk about this misalignment. These are really good people who are misaligned and their prayer life goes a different direction. So I'm going to take you through a real quick survey of some prayers. 
So if you are, if you are wrong about Jesus or you're wrong about Jesus' plan for your life, you're going to lose out on the effective prayer life that you have. So Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified by the Son. So if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So again, listen to what Jesus says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is what John says. Ask according to his will. That my Father may be glorified in the Son. This is so important because our prayers must be in accordance to Jesus' name and for the glory of God. Now evaluate your prayer life. Say, well, I can name it and claim it. Say whatever God is going to give you the desires of your heart. If your heart is lined up with his statutes, there's no inconsistency of, of prayer in the scripture. It's very consistent. So to pray in Jesus, that's not something we just add to the end of prayer, but it's to be able to move from praying a, a self-focused prayer to a, a prayer that honors and glorifies God. So as we pray by Jesus, it's the only way we can unlock heaven and come boldly before the throne. We pray in accordance to God's will. We can pray with confidence. But if we embrace idolatry, if we embrace a false view of Jesus, it's going to shift trajectory just enough that you can't tell it except by a wishy-washy prayer life. Let me explain. James chapter 4, verse 3. If you want to look it up, you can do that. But behind me, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Well, then I'll just ask rightly. But what is the wrong? So that you can spend it on your passions or your pleasures, right? Natural prayers are self-seeking. This is why our prayer life must be intentional and it must be supernatural. You're asking for things that are good and but you have selfish motives. And that prayer is going to fall to the floor because the glory of God is lost in it. James is consistent with what John said. John is consistent with what Paul said. Paul is consistent with what Jesus said. The proper motive for prayer is that God will be honored by answering our prayer. For you, O Lord. Rather than praying for you want, we must learn to pray for what God wants. And that comes from a confidence that's found in the assurance of our salvation. God, what do you want me to pray for today? What, do, what, what is your plan for me to accomplish today? Lord, if there be somebody in my path today that you want me to speak to or minister to, if you'd reveal them to me, I'm telling you, your eyes will be much more clearly open to those things because your prayers are answered because you choose to glorify God rather than your selfish pleasures. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ears dull that he cannot hear. The Lord's ears are not dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you hear that? doesn't say he cannot hear. He does not, will not hear if a believer retains known sin in their life. If you harbor sin in your life, God's going to turn his ear from your prayer. And I think that there are many Christians that are missing God's plan for their life. And they don't even know it. They don't even care. Because they choose their sin more than they choose the glory of God. And the best way to defeat that is to choose repentance when you pray. And if you can't pray humbly and with humility, then I'm not sure you can be repentant. If you see yourself as entitled or due or worthy, I'm not sure you can be heard. Think of Psalm 139 when the psalmist says, Search me, O God, know my heart and try me, know my thoughts. Know my heart, know my thoughts, because I don't, Lord. 
and see if there be any wicked way in me. There may be some things in my heart and there may be some things in my thoughts that I haven't even recognized yet. Lord, bring them to my attention so that I can purge them because I want to be heard by you. And this proper prayer brings alignment. Alignment brings surrender. Surrender brings repentance. And repentance brings the ability to see God's glory so that we can say, your will be done, not mine. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3 says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and they have set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? This is the Lord saying, you are bringing idols and an idol, uh, uh, you know, idolatry into your faith system and then you have the gall to pray to me. And what the Lord is asking is a rhetorical question. Should I let myself be consulted by your prayers? And the answer, of course, would be no. God's not going to answer our prayer if there's any things in our life more important to us than him. And the only way to live that way is to have your confidence in the apostolic teaching of Jesus Christ. But man, all it takes is just a subtle shift away from God wants me to be happy. Now all of a sudden I'm self-seeking. God wants me to be, or Jesus is, and before long it's idolatry, it's false teaching. All of a sudden it's hardness of hearts. When you refuse, and I'm saying this with love and a warning, if you refuse to listen to God, how in the world can you expect him to listen to you? Proverbs 21, 13, we see something a little more practical here. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Arrogance, selfishness, a lack of serving, a lack of helping, a lack of looking outwardly. It robs us in ways that we're not even aware of. We spend all of our energies on ourselves, and we say things like, well, they deserve it or they made their bed, they should lie in it or who cares about them or I'm, thank God I'm not like these people. That lack of generosity toward the poor and toward you know, God's heart isn't only about money. It's also about showing compassion. It's about showing care and ministry and investment of yourself into the lives of others. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done for me. Christians should be known by their heart of serving because that's the heart of their Savior. And that's who we're aligning with, right? Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We talked about it earlier. It's in the giving where we are reminded that we are completely dependent upon him. And if our ears are not open to the cries of the poor and the outcasts, but we expect God's ears to be open to us? Mark 11, 25. Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone... So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespass. Unforgiveness will not only destroy your life, it will destroy your prayer life. A spirit of bitterness and a spirit of prayer cannot belong to the same person. Our whole relationship with God is dependent upon his forgiveness. So when we forgive, we're actually releasing him into the situation. But when we harbor unforgiveness, we remove him from the equation entirely and we're only left with our hearts, which has just proven is empty of him. Jesus said, if we don't forgive any, then we do not receive his forgiveness. Now listen, this is a, this is a daily reality that causes us to turn to idols, we turn to pleasure, we turn to temporary answers for our eternal needs. And, and really it is summed up in how well we can forgive and God will begin to listen. Now, a couple more. 1 Peter 3, 7. This one's tough. Likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Listen, it's, you can put on your Jesus face when you come to church and no one will be none the wiser. But if there's dishonor, you can sing, you can lift up your holy hands if you want to at church. But if there's dishonor in your relationship, God ain't listening, fellas. Ladies, I think what's good for him is good for you. If there's dishonor in your relationship, it's going to affect your prayer life. And I'll tell you, that's because husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Show respect to your husbands as the church unto the Lord. All of a sudden, you begin to find out this is very consistent with seeking the glory of God in your relationships. But if you're not going to do that, if your assurance isn't built on Jesus Christ and firmly placed on the apostolic teaching of Jesus, your prayer life will be hindered. You say, stay out of my house, Lord. I'm just coming to church and all my relationships are good except this one. Well, that one is the one he's judging. Because out of that one comes everyone. Every other relationship in your life is fake if that one's not right. Last one, James 1, 5 through 7. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Listen, I'm telling you that when you are aligned with Jesus and your confidence is in him, your assurance is in him, the confidence of your prayer life changes. Not because you're a better person, but because you have a better view of Jesus. And prayers are hindered by instability, wishy-washy faith, you know, on again, off again. But consistency builds faith. Faith leads to God's glory and selflessness. Like all these other verses, this is tied to God's glory. And if we can't ask God to do something in faith, what, and what does it mean to ask, you know, in faith? It means certain that God wants to. So let's move on to verse 16 of 1 John chapter 5. Now, it's our prayer life and our confidence in Jesus that's in view here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sin, sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Listen, these verses have caused a lot of debate, but in order to understand it, you cannot take them out of their smaller context and broader context. And so that's what we're going to consider. It's a lot easier to interpret that way. So John's broad concern in this section is that we embrace a correct view of Jesus, that we avoid idolatry and the sin that leads to death. Now, in some translations, some of your translations may say a sin that leads to death. That's not a good translation. There is no definite article in this verse. There there are categories of sins, not specific sins, right? There's not a sin that leads to death. It's not like the the final one. Okay, that's the one. Boom. No, he's talking about categories. There are sins that do not lead to death, and there are sins that do lead to death. Not a sin, but sins. Okay, it's very important to understand that. This is sin that leads to death in the sense that it shows either that a person is still dead in their trespasses and their, their uh, understanding or their trajectory or whatever is proof that they have never become a Christian, which I really don't believe that's true because he is writing to those who believe. The true Christians that God will remove from earth before their time because they're doing more harm for his glory than they are good. Now, all wrongdoing is sin, but not all wrongdoing is evidence that a person has never been saved and remains dead in their sins. But a rejection of apostolic teaching concerning the person of Jesus is exactly that. Christians sin. 
John has been clear about that. In fact, he goes so far to say, Christians, if you say you are not sinning or have sin, you are a liar. He tells us what to do with known sin in our life. Over and over we see that Jesus is our advocate regarding sin. But now he urges Christians to help others by prayer when they sin. So one way to pray according to God's will is to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ when you see them in their sin. Well, you know that a Christian is in sin. We need to pray for conviction and confession. And I'll tell you, I, have, I, ha, I pray for sleeplessness. When I know that Christians are not living the way they should, I pray that God won't let them sleep. That if they do sleep, they will not have rest. I pray for misery, just so you know. If you want me to join you in prayer for people that are struggling, and I'll tell you why, your misery here temporarily until you can repent is so much better than a sin that leads to death. Because you should be here bringing glory to God, helping the church, locking arms with the church, rather than doing more harm than good. You remember what Paul told the church at Corinth? You guys should stop meeting because you, you're doing worse when you meet than if you didn't meet at all. And I'm paraphrasing that, of course. But that's what he says. The evidence that a person's confidence is in Jesus is that a Christian knows how to repent. They're not known by the license that they can sin and the freedom to express themselves in selfish ways and still claim grace. Christians' confidence comes from humbling themselves before God and repenting of sin in their life. And if Christians won't repent, it's probably a good show that they've never known Jesus Christ to begin with or they've adopted some false ideology that promised them something but not been transforming in their life. Because when you have the confidence in Jesus, the assurance of Jesus, one of the assurances brings a confidence of humility that brings us to the foot of the cross. But when you see it, I don't know exactly how John wants us to break this down. And I do think that we find this in several other places in Scripture. When do you stop praying for people? John says, when you see this, you don't, don't even pray for them. You see them committing a sin that leads to death. Sins that lead to death, there's no point in praying for that person. I don't know that I know what category certain sins are in. But I know this. I know that I've, I've seen and see often Christians with hardened hearts choosing opposition to God's will in their life. And I think in those situations, we are on shaky ground. And it is because of God's graciousness and it is because of God's mercy and patience that we're not already consumed. But I think there's a time that comes in a person's life when they continually reject the grace of God and God said, that's enough. That's enough. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a forfeiture of salvation. But I do believe you get to forfeit giving God glory in this breath. There's more time needs to be spent on this. But I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul talks about what they had turned the Lord's Supper into. And he said it's because they've mistreated the Lord's Supper that many of them are sick. Some have already fallen asleep. Some are already dead, falling asleep, being waiting on the final judgment. Because God has already taken some of them because they're not living like Christians. They're Christians, but they're not living like it. You've got to go. That's terrifying. And for some of you, it scares you, and I think maybe it should. When James in chapter 5 says, if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and lay hands on them and pray. And if they have committed any sin, they will be forgiven. There are sin that lead to death. But repentance is the cure. An alignment with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is the cure. That's what John is saying here. And it's with that context that we move to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, Jesus, 
protects him and the evil one does not touch him. The benefits continue. We know that our future is secure in Jesus and we know that we have protection from Jesus Christ. If you're wrong about Jesus, you forfeit spiritual protection. You remember what Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, talks about bringing your tithes into the storehouse? Now, this is a person that's in alignment with God's glory. And he said, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. You remember that? person who is walking for the glory of God rebukes the devourer. This has the same picture in mind. Someone who is protecting you from the devourer. What a benefit. And when you're confident in Jesus Christ, you'll have the protection of Jesus Christ. Sure, Christians can still sin. Christians can do Anything the world can do. But the mark of Christianity is repentance. And when Christians do sin, they repent over time. They grow in their commitment and their ability to overcome sin. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But Jesus, when there is a lapse or when there is unintentional attitudes or things that come up, Jesus Christ puts the guard around you to protect you from satanic attacks that would destroy you. And there are so many Christians who who move from attack to attack to attack because we're forfeiting the blessing. And you know these folks. It's like their life is a, a story of attack after attack after attack. And there's many of us that would say, man, why is this just like one thing right after the other? You know what I mean? One thing right after the other. Wouldn't it be nice to know that Jesus is rebuking the devourer? Wouldn't it be nice to know that Jesus is putting protection around you because of your alignment with his glory? There's no protection any other place. And if you're wrong about Jesus in the slightest, you forfeit the protection. More the confidence that can come from knowing that Satan only can jump out from behind trees and say boo. Or you can live in terror that he's on the prowl. Lastly, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may, what? Know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Listen, the confidence that comes from knowing Jesus in me, our life begins to resemble the way, the truth, and the life. We look more and more like Jesus. We reflect him more and more. He is innocent. Everything that we were, he has taken. We are in him. And everything that he has, he has given to us. And this is a definitive statement of the whole book. And so John concludes, little children, keep yourself from idols. Because it shifts the trajectory. These false things that you would just take in and let allow to acclimate and negotiate and compromise. These little things are going to cause you to forfeit all of the blessings that comes from an aligned relationship with Jesus. And they're going to rob you of your confidence in Jesus. That's going to rob you of your assurance in Jesus. So, With that admonition, I would say the same. Little children, do not receive idols into yourself. Protect protect yourself from idols. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that the only way to truly protect ourselves from falsehoods, from fallacies, from untruths, 
is to surrender to you. And Lord, my fear is that there are a great many that have made confessions without surrender. Statements without humility, without allegiance. Lord, I pray that you would use your message today to create discomfort in us. Not so that we can walk in fear, but so that we can walk in power. Not so that we are troubled, because if this message brings us trouble, I mean, I, I feel like messages like this should cause us to shout, my, what benefits there are. Everything that our spirit craves is found in Jesus Christ. And out of that, we have power in this world. And that should excite every believer. And yet, many of us war against this because it's not in agreement to what we want. So, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would begin softening our hearts and allow us to remember who Jesus is. Allow us to know him to obey Him and to love each other. Lord, give us the right eyes to evaluate. Help us to see what you see and help us to have the courage and the confidence to bring those things into alignment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? If you would be so bold or maybe so humble today as to recognize that maybe you're not in alignment, maybe you, you recognize that your heart's hard, maybe there's some things about yourself that's come into view today, I ask maybe, maybe you'd be humble enough but confident enough in Jesus to maybe come forward and have someone pray with you or just maybe make things right with the Lord. If you've never accepted Jesus but... Maybe your life is empty and you're numb and you're searching. I'm telling you, we can put a stop to the search today. He's everything you're looking for. He satisfies us and only he satisfies us. Lord, hear our confession today as we declare that we do love you and continue to teach us what it looks like to love you more and more. I pray that we would mull over your word today and that we would take it into our hearts and apply it to our spirits. And Lord, my, my prayer is today, not that we would feel bad about our faith, but that we would walk boldly with it. That we would walk with power. We would stop forfeiting your best because we keep wanting our best. So Lord, I pray that you would go with us, encourage us, restore us, remind us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.